1: Hello and welcome to the podcast mini series from Curzon, all about one of Europe's most intriguing filmmakers that's asking you not to say Pinastri just yet. I know I have a different way of showing it, but I'm ready to podcast with you. And with you, Catherine Bray. <laughs> Hi. And you, Stephen Ryder. Hello. So if you're like me and see the words the Duke of Burgundy pop up in your podcast feed and immediately click, you may have missed our first two episodes of this micro adventure. So do go back and listen to our discussions on Catelyn Varga and Berberian Sound Studio, where you'll also be able to hear from the director, Peter Strickland himself, about those films. If you have not seen the Duke of Burgundy or Catelyn Varga or Berberian Sound Studio and you would like to, they are all available on Curzon Home Cinema. Go to curzonhomecinema.com, search for the name of the film, When you're there, enter the code STRICKLAND and you'll get 50% off. That is exclusive to our podcast listeners. Now, in this episode, we will be taking a heavenly conversational detour down a forest road in the world of Peter Strickland's third film and hearing Peter discuss his influences and feelings towards eroticism and power as well. What a heady perfume of conversation that awaits us. Panastro. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've had enough already. <laughs> so The Duke of Burgundy this was the first Peter Strickland film that I was lucky enough to see in the cinema but Catherine what is this one all about
3: well very simply put it's about two very beautiful women in a relationship and that's literally it's it, on one level it's an you know, incredibly self-contained film And I guess we've got the rest of the podcast to talk about what it is on another level.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, And we'll get Peter to tell us a little bit about it and try and deconstruct it as well. Um, Now, despite being his third film, in a way, this feels like the difficult second album following up Berberian Sound Studio. Stephen, how are you feeling going into this one following on that film, which we all knew and loved?
0: Yeah, I mean... um, I think it's the difficult second album because the first film feels more like a demo tape, right? Mm. Um, This feels more like it's uh, you've got a fully formed idea of who this director is now. Um, He's got a kind of, I want to say a clear aesthetic, but he's still very unpredictable as a filmmaker. Um, And, you know, to make a film like this now, which is uh, called The Duke of Burgundy, which... You know, Jake, you think it's a very good title. I think it's a very good title, too.
1: I think it's a really good name. I was intrigued straight away, um, like, judging from just, like, images that had come out and the director and the name of the film. In my head, this was, like, sexy lesbian Barry Lyndon. And I'm super up for that. Um, And... But for you, it was the complete opposite. You said, this is a boring name.
0: Well, yeah, I it's I, I thought it was a boring name because it just, I, I thought it was like a period piece uh, drama, which isn't my usual kind of go-to film. Um, it sounded like it would be very kind of historically based in term, and, and very masculine. Uh, couldn't be more wrong. Uh, to me, it's actually, uh, it's an extremely feminine film um, made by a, a director who clearly has a lot of faith in his actors to kind of control the scenes. And, uh what I love about this film and what I kind of, my my thesis around this whole kind of film is, uh, is that it's kind of a parody of the erotic drama um, in that it kind of pulls apart all of the things that make a film erotic, shows them at the same time, but then also kind of showcases the, the banality of how you go about having a strong erotic relationship with your partner. Um, and it creates a sense of comedy and drama that I think, has flown through all of his films, but really comes to a head in this one.
1: Yeah. um, Starting things off. Yeah. So our two key characters are Evelyn and Cynthia. And the film starts with Evelyn studying, uh, lepidopterology, the study of moths and butterflies under Cynthia. And, uh, Evelyn is romantically involved with her works as a maid in her home. She has very strict behaviors that Cynthia gives her and tasks and, uh, quite gross jobs to do around the house. But that is just the opening 15 minutes and then suddenly the film turns on its head.
3: Yeah, I mean, I was uh, really fortunate in that I got to read the script for this before seeing the film. So I knew what was coming there, but actually that didn't spoil it at all. Like watching, uh, I mean, as I'm sure you know, having watched it more than once at this point, um, watching that, that opening scene when you do know that actually it's two people playing a game of a maid and a mistress. Um, I think it's a one of those films that's better on a second watch when you have a little bit of a handle on what's going on. I mean, we've said a difficult second album, but as I understand it, he did write it before Kathleen Varga, so it's also a film that goes very deep into the sort of Strickland concerns of who we are, uh, not so much as human beings in a sort of naturalistic documentary, humanistic, that, that sort of cinema, um, but kind of how we bump up against each other in our roles, I think, is something that he's very concerned with and it's sort of who has power and why and why do we give them power.
1: Yeah, and once you remove the ideas of uh, like the sex that we're seeing on screen and the, the power and the letters and the human toilet and all of this, as, going back to Catherine's first point, this is just an observation on a relationship.
0: Hey, look, the, for me, the, the pivotal scene in the film and the kind of the scene that... Um, that ties everything nicely together happens more or less in the middle of the film and it's just a shot of the two of them in bed together from the neck up um, uh, there is you know no nudity in this scene there's you know there's sexuality in it eroticism in it but there's no nudity and you get to see in a very intimate fashion this is a camera right above their heads you get to see them discuss their relationship and you get to see all the little quirks and the little power plays that each of them kind of ha- that, that each of them use in order to both please and to displease the other person um, and that scene itself kind of encapsulates their entire relationship for me and it's just so fascinating to watch these two actresses being given all of this um, responsibility and it works so well.
1: Yeah, and I think this one reveals Strickland uh as as a romantic that we he will also explore in, in Fabric as well. And that's not some side of him that we've seen. Catelyn Varga and Berberian, although um Berberian has a slightly lighter tone, that you would you kind of picture him as quite a hardcore guy. Um, and this manages to kind of drift away from that and you can see like a little bit of heart within this man
3: but it's also about control because there's there are two levels there's the there's the control between them in their relationship when they're playing out a BDSM scenario um and then we do get to see when they drop that, and they're just being themselves. But at the same time, in those scenes where they're just being themselves, we're still in Strickland band. We're still in this world that he's created, where there are no men in this in this film, in this particular one. Um, we're still in this world where there's never a hair out of place on these actresses. They're in this sort of stunningly designed lingerie. There's a yeah, credit for the person who designed the perfume in the film. So in a sense, it's not a film that will ever lose control, even if we do see what happens when they within that. It's, it's sort of more, almost like watching somebody playing with dolls, and you watch the dolls play a game between themselves. But then you also, watch the whole time, we're still in doll world.
1: Yeah, and yeah, it, it does have that feeling totally. Like the the house in the woods that they live in, that's the, the setting of the film, or for most of the film. Uh, that feels like something like a little girl would make up based on little red riding hood th- a little dream dollhouse that she could plant in the foot of the garden
0: yeah i don't i don't think it's any surprise that he kind of puts I, I don't think the 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 perfume and lingerie supplied by kind of um title card is is like a power play by peter strickland i think he knows very well that by putting that in he's insinuating something to his audience like You can smell the perfume in this movie. This is a hazy room. You can, you know, you look at that lingerie and you wonder where it's come from because it's so intricate and fascinating. Like he's putting these ideas into the audience's head in this amazing title sequence that's similar to the title sequence from The Equestrian Vortex in Barbarian Sound Studio. But he uses uses the title sequence as... A means to kind of influence the audience and that's such a clever thing for a director to do i think
4: yeah
1: well i think it's about time we heard from him uh so here is peter strickland on the duke of burgundy um,
4: one of the dangers uh, of having a discussion about a body of work is to retrospectively link everything together and 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 find patterns and lines which may not have really existed but it does strike me watching Duke of Burgundy after seeing Barbarian, that in some ways perhaps this was a reaction, that you had an incredibly repressed person, and so now what you're going to do is explore a more open relationship, yet still with, with elements remaining.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I never thought of it that way. I mean, maybe subconsciously, but, um, I mean, the Duke of Burgundy came from, I guess I moved from uh, Italian horror to Euro erotica really and I wanted to kind of look at that and take some of the tropes from those films because they, often they are very sad- sadomasochistic often involving women as lovers um, but often usually designed for a straight audience straight, straight men usually um, and I think just trying to Find this just a different way of looking at it, really. Um I think the image for me was you'd see these films, especially these women in, behind bars films, which I some of them can be pretty intense, but there was this kind of iconography of of, you know, the, the domineering woman. But you know, that's just a persona, that's just an act. But what if that woman It's tired of putting on, you know, the idea of the the reluctant dominant and the whole power play thing of, you know, the submissive controlling the dominant and the whole exchange of power and compromise as well. Um, And it's not just about, I mean, I I took something very, very niche, um, but hopefully by seeing it, you recognize something quite universal about where people want to live together. You know, quite often in a couple, one person doesn't want to live in this place. And, or having kids and the whole, how that works in terms of who's doing more work in their jobs and who isn't, or who wants to do, you know. It, it's, so. I think for me, it just opened up this whole world of, um, without taking sides, just who should be doing the, um, who, who, should, who, should, who, should, who should kind of make way for, for the other person, really. Um, so, you know, should Evelyn, hold back her desires to give her lover a peaceful time? Or should Cynthia put on this act that she really doesn't like doing to please her lover? And I'm, I'm not giving the answer, really. I'm just trying to show that world, really.
4: An interesting thing with it, um, watching the film again recently, and then going back and seeing the first two films and now having watched it in fabric, um, to use the old Hitchcock dictum of Shodong Tao I watch too many films and programs where I see someone acting and then they're telling me why they're acting. I already know why they're acting. I've no need for that. Um, And it it is really impressive, the way that your scripts are written when it comes to dialogue, that it feels like you reduce the dialogue down to its essentials, but still keep an elegance to the words that are spoken. But within that, watching Duke of Burgundy, it struck me, and then seeing, the, going back and watching the other films, that part of the reason that works so well is the way that you have characters navigate space. And Duke of Burgundy, particularly, having these long sequences of no dialogue, which is, that, because it's unnecessary, because it is all about who are, occupies and owns what space.
2: Yeah, it was actually, um, but some of that came by accident. I remember with, with The Carpenter, with Fatma Mohammed, when. I, I wrote that as pages of dialogue when she first comes in to me- measure the the bed for the bondage bed. Uh and I remember playing some music to the actors. Often I play music just to get them in the mood. I'm not I'm sometimes I'm not very good at talking about motivation. Music sometimes it just gets them in that space. Um and I just saw Fatima messing around with a tape measure, just moving around to this music. thought, oh, this is quite interesting. And I looked at the dialogue and I thought, we actually, we we don't need this. Um, So that was literally that morning, we just crossed it out and said, okay, just, then I think Nick set up this thing with these mirrors, um, and then we just redid it. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, I always enjoyed that in films. Um, I think two directors who who do it really well are, um, I think they're quite a big inspiration on me, um, Helen Catet and Bruno Fazzani from Belgium, with Amer and the strange colour of your, of your body's tears, even though that came, I saw that after the Duke of Burgundy. Um, but Amer was wonderful, it just had these very powerful sequences without any dialogue, and the use of music, and montage, and so on.
4: But what, what I find particularly powerful in Duke of Burgundy is you you maintain this, this um, Minimal dialogue, but still articulately show us how—not necessarily how the balance of power is shifting between the two, but our understanding of where that power relationship lies between the two of them.
2: Well, that was—that was, that was for me. Yeah, I mean, I remember now because I was writing exactly the same dialogue, and it's, it's, it's pretty much a, a complete repetition of a scene you've seen before but because your understanding of of the dynamic changes, the whole scene is quite different. So that, that was really interesting for me to take this whole slave or servant scenario at the beginning of the film and you see it three times pretty much and each time there was a shift in power. Um, so I, again, I guess the idea of... I mean, a lot of it, I guess, came from... I don't know where it came from. Just this idea of modulating something. It's repetitive, but you're doing the work, your, your perspective is changing it, I'm not changing it, you know, because the dialogue is, is exactly the same. Um, what I tell the actors is changing it and what they're telling you is changing it.
4: You've got broad, you work with broadcasts there, you move on to Cat's Eyes and, and then Cavanagh of Antimatter. Um, I'm, I'm curious, how early on all the films that you've worked on the process, do you begin to think about the music?
2: Um, or does the
4: music come first as ideas?
2: It varies. With Varga. With the music came first. I even wrote to Steve Stapleton and asked, can I get permission to use this? Because I want to write a script. I don't want to write the script and find it's not available. Um, broadcast, I, I, I wanted to work with them f- for quite a while. I mean, I knew Rog um, through friends. I was a huge fan. Um, so Rog introduced me to Trish and James. Um, but yeah, that came, I, I had written the script I can't, I'm pretty sure I, you know, I think it's one of those things where, because I wrote it before Varga, so getting getting a band like Broadcast felt a bit out of my reach. It didn't feel like it was possible, even though I was, I was friends with, 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 with Rog. Um, so when it happened, it was like, wow, this is amazing. And of course, tragedy struck because Trish died. Um, um, with Cat's Eyes, I bought their first album like a few weeks after Trish died, actually. Um, and it, it just, I was amazing. And, and again, I didn't think, I thought, that, you know, there'd be someone to kind of think about for the future, but it wasn't like an instant thing. Because um, initially I was talking to James, James Cargill from Broadcast about doing Duke of Burgundy. Um, so yeah, and then Cabin of matter that was, that came very early before I even had. An idea. I think because in the past, because I got bands quite late, I'd already attached myself to music. Because when I write, I need music to kind of get me going, uh, and then it becomes very difficult to unglue myself. And I think it's really important to let m- musicians just let them have as much freedom as possible. I think as a director, you can talk about the instruments you want, but not even that sometimes. I think, yeah, just because with Tim, I felt he had. Comp- he might dispute this, but I thought, you know, he had complete freedom. I mean, he would suggest instruments like the Celeste and so on. Um, I think part of that was to get him as early as possible and not have this constraint of temp music, which I think is um, can really hinder a soundtrack. Because, you know, I think you want to sound as original as possible. Okay, we all have references, but... Um, the danger with temp music is you end up doing something that um, sounds, you know, like with some adverts, you feel they couldn't get the money for this piece of music, so they get someone in to make it sound as close as possible without without getting sued. Which, because you know, for me, the soundtracks I love don't sound like other soundtracks. So that's always the thing to to just keep in mind. You know? I think with Cats Eyes, when they did um, a lot of the Duke of Burgundy, a lot of the soundtrack to the Duke of Burgundy, it felt like it's them. It doesn't feel like it comes from somewhere else, the same with Tim. When he asked me about the the nightclub music for for In Fabric, um, I said, just make it sound like you, don't worry about it sounding like the 1990s, or this or that, just do something that you would do, that sounds like, yeah.
3: How long do I have
0: to stay in here for?
3: For as long as I want.
1: I think a great place to uh, get into The Duke and Burgundy would be this script because he talks in the interview there about a scene being set up that has a lot of dialogue there. And then on the day, they get to blocking it, shooting it, and they realise, oh, none of that actually needs to be there. And this film is full of just looks, silences, touches. Uh, and you realise that Strickland, throughout his body of work, any dialogue that is there needs to be there. But a lot of the time, he's just relying on us to interpret what's going on
0: yeah absolutely and uh this is why i think he's spoken about um having faith in his uh actors and his troupe of uh of actors and actresses that he has at his disposal because um he feels like or it seems to me as though he feels very reliant on them to get his his point across in a scene and without dialogue that can be a very difficult thing to do but this is such a visceral film we just spoke about the kind of the the smells of the film even though you can't smell a film but um you can you you can smell this film if you watch it and the close-ups of touches on legs and the close-ups of slight kind of facial um changes um in the bedroom scene um none of this needs dialogue and it's a lot more powerful when you start to feel as though you can tell what these characters are thinking what does Um, it smell like what does the film smell like a rose a rose yeah like like no like a rose smell maybe a little bit of citrus a little bit of like zest Um,
3: i've got a perfume which is from a cafe in venice where they filmed the scene in talented mr ripley where marge says i know it was you dicky and i think it smells like that perfume (laughs) Yes,
1: (laughs) i can believe that one um yeah and going back to this performances Stephen. uh Peter Strickland references the idea of modulating our experience as an audience that that interest in repetition So we have that first 15 minutes of the film and then we get to see that again and seeing those actors play these things out again and again from different angles, uh, we're seeing more and more of the scene and it's something that we've seen him do in Bo sound studio, both with actors and performance, but both in the technical side of the film as well um, so we've got these uh zooms in on an image that we haven't been zoomed in on before. He's really asking us to look again at something, but in a way that just makes it more confusing.
0: (laughs) He does that thing where he cuts, he, he will zoom in on something very, very slowly, then he'll cut to a reaction shot, and he'll cut back to the previous thing, and this time he'll be zooming out. And... throws you off entirely and you have no idea kind of um what this thing that you're watching on the screen is even though you've just seen it um because he is he is constantly kind of moving the camera back and forth back and forth and uh i I just really like that that you never kind of from shot to shot you never know what he's going to do with that image
1: yeah and those reaction shots can be so powerful you've got cynthia there who's never says anything but you can totally tell so clearly in her face whether this is her being over overcome with pleasure uh, in a in a restricted BDSM type way or whether she's just bored of the whole thing mm. uh, legitimately.
3: And he's super into sort of uh, surfaces and textures of not just the like the lace of the lingerie and the sort of soap of washing the knickers and all of that stuff um i think he's into the surfaces of human beings although the actors are very well directed and give these wonderful performances i think it's very geared around not necessarily letting us in on their inner monologue all the time it's not that school of acting where it's like you've got to really show us what they're feeling because they're kind of quite repressed a lot of the time
0: that's why it feels so special when you kind of when you feel like you've figured out their feelings you feel like it's a real achievement because these are like repressed people in a lot of ways even though they're living out their fantasies this there's still a repression there and i think that's something that a lot of people can kind of sympathize with empathize with
1: yeah and and you would say that um there's strickland's best performances in this
0: film i think sid uh babette nudson um as cynthia is is for me um the the best performance uh that he's gotten out of any of his actors it's just so uh there's so much going on with this character she's having to play two or three characters in this film um and you never really feel as though you've got a hold of who she is and and like i said when you do see something on her face that you recognize it feels like you've really connected with her and then all of a sudden it disappears again and i think that's a really special performance
3: and it kind of reminds me, um, with good reason, because Peter Strickland has said it's, an, it's a bit of an influence of um, Catherine Deneuve in *Belle de Jour*. That kind of um, often quite hard to read sort of affect, um, but at the same time, really works in that semi fairy tale world of the film where it's playing with fantasy and reality. There's, yeah.
0: yeah, there's this incredible moment in *Belle de Jour* actually from Deneuve, where because I watched that film a few years ago and I'd heard so much about this performance, and uh, you. you you meet this ice cold like maiden um, and for the first 40 minutes you're like I'm not getting this I'm not connecting with this character then after her first kind of uh, moment of uh, sexuality and eroticism as a prostitute she kind of lifts her head up from the bed and her hair's hanging over her face and you get it you get why it's such a special performance and this happens throughout Duke of Burgundy as well in that one minute you've got, you'd say, Babette Nudsen as Cynthia as this cold kind of um, woman who's pushing her partner away. And the next minute, she's the most loving person in the world. And that's how relationships are. And although it's in a very strange environment, this film, a very timeless environment as well, like his other films, um, it still works so well as a, a very authentic kind of portrayal of a relationship.
3: And Belle de Jour, obviously, um obviously, another film that's sort of famous for its costumes and tableau, which is something that I think is so much at the heart of Duke of Burgundy and something that I've been thinking about much more recently in relation to Duke of Burgundy is the role of drag, uh, partly because I've been watching an awful lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, but the idea of reducing aspects, or not reducing, but um, conceiving of femaleness as aspects of sort of almost... Like fetishistic objects, the makeup, the underwear, the clothes, the hair, um, and the extent to which all of that is things that you put on. Like none of that actually really has anything to do with being a woman, but it does have a lot to do about a lot to do with playing femininity. And I think it's something that women and drag queens have access to in a way that very few men do in kind of conventional gender presentations.
1: I mean, it's great to. Uh... See like this this incredible palette of inspirations that Strickland brings to the table. Uh, We we mentioned Stan Brakhage in regards to the montaging in Barbarian Sound Studio. Of course, Mothlight is a big inspiration on this film as well.
0: Yeah, there's that incredible scene, which for me in this film could have been the final scene for me. It's just, I I know what Strickland tries to do with the conclusion of the film and it does work, but there's this incredible moment in this film with uh, these moths that kind of, or butterflies that kind of fly at the camera. Uh, Strickland said, I think in an interview that Stan Brakhage would have hated it because they're all CG. <laughs> which is what Brackage hated but um, yeah f- there's this amazing moment where they kind of take over the film for a moment and and actually like take over the screen that you're watching on um, and I think uh, yeah he, he basically said that um, he wanted to do an homage to Brackage at some point and the fact that uh, moths and butterflies kind of organically found their way into the script he, he took his chance to do something weird with them yeah.
1: and they took over the sound at that point as well um, uh, one of my most played records at home is actually the Cat's Eyes vinyl um, for this soundtrack because it is amazing because it just sets the mood of the film so quickly. You have little bits of dialogue dropped into the soundtrack as well and you have the sound of doors closing and you totally get into these little moments of drama for what would in another world be inconsequential movements and they're all blended into this wonderful textural uh, sound that Cat's Eyes put together. They're uh, Such a odd group. You've got Faris Badman from the horrors uh, who is one of the only guys in the world that can get away with still dressing like a goth, but also delivering a mid-song monologue, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's his, it's his collaboration uh, with Rachel Zephra, who's this uh, Italian-Canadian soprano, and so they bring this quite weird mixture of kind of uh, baroque opera feeling and British goth takes into it, and. Both their albums are great. They've got this kind of rock and roll do-wop feel to them as well. And initially I thought, what an odd choice for them to score the film. And then you go and watch the film. You hear their soundscape, and it's amazing. But then you take it home. You listen to it again, and you're totally back in that world.
3: Mm. And shout out to Martin Pavi as well, who I think has done the sound design on a bunch of uh, Strickland stuff. Does a lot of Ben Wheatley, all of that. And Strickland sort of says he brings like five times as much to the table as you know pretty much anyone else on any set ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, any director is always going to have to compliment their sound designer the most because they get so disregarded, and they're doing. <laughs> Fifty percent of the work, really.
0: Yeah, I think Strickland, after making Barbarian Sound Studio, is probably well aware of the horrors that they have to face. As, yeah, uh, you know, well, within the filmmaking world.
1: Well, and beyond the sounds in the film, it's the music as well. Broadcasts for Barbarian Cat's Eyes here, cavern uh, of antimatter in fabric. There's a this great warbling synth line that we'll get into on that film. It's it's just, I just
0: think it's so great how there's he's he's kind of built this kind of in an auteurist way his thing now is having his films scored by like experimental electronic musicians Mm. like that that's at first that's kind of a oh yeah that's cool he did that but now he's done it for three films in a row and he's changed each time he's changed he's changed the people that he works with um but I just think it's a really cool thing that when you go into his films, you know you're going to be getting something kind of fresh from, mm. a, from a musician who kind of is going to care about what they're doing.
3: And so. he's working in a sort of collective of people who are all super interested in that. I mean, I think this is the first film that Andy Stark produces on and then he's on... In fabric as well. You know, these are all guys who and gals who know their know their stuff sonically. I mean, Mary Burke, she produced Berberian, She's I think married to one of the Warp guys. Like the, she, he's very much existing in that world where music is absolutely as important as image.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, now, sadly, we must all vacate our human toilets. It's been a pleasure, uh, but we must navigate a path out of the forest and leave the Duke of Burgundy behind. And look now to the present. Uh, remember to use the offer code STRICKLAND on Curzon Home Cinema if you haven't already. You can get 50% off Peter's first three films uh, ahead of watching his new film In Fabric, which is out this week or out now, depending on when you're listening to this. That is the film we'll be talking about in the fourth and final episode. It's a new horror comedy featuring a couple of killer tales wrapped in the soft fabric of the world's most bloodthirsty ball gown. nasty!